Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Paul Cleal and James de Sommeres. Paul Cleal is a senior board member and advisor specialising in strategy, leadership and change. He has enjoyed a prestigious career spanning some 30 years working in local and central government, for 16 years of which he was a partner in PwC, serving on the management boards in both the UK and Africa. Paul has won a number of awards for his work in diversity and was also a board member of the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission, advising government ministers. Paul, welcome. Thanks, Julie. James de Sommeres is Director and Head of Investment Trust at Janice Henderson Investors and is a leading figure in the investment trust industry. He is responsible for all aspects of the business, including the relationship between Henderson Global Investors and the boards of the managed investment trusts. James is a common councilman in the City of London Corporation and a member of the Council of St Paul's Cathedral. And he tells us he is a firm believer in diversity and social mobility to create a city that offers genuine equal opportunity. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. At the start of the show, we invite each guest to take a minute and tell us what they're focused on at the moment. So, Paul, let me come to you first of all. What are you working on? Thanks, Julie. We're at the moment in the nearly year or so since I left uh, PwC after many years, It's given me the time to focus on some of my passions around social mobility and uh, diversity and inclusion, among other things. And uh, I mean, there's two or three things I'd like to mention, really. One is just the ongoing amount of mentoring I've been able to do with young uh, colleagues and friends uh, across a variety of industries. I think that's a really good way of learning about how they see the world. And I think the whole idea of reverse mentoring, I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, is, is a good example of that because senior people can then understand you know, what the world looks like from the viewpoint of more junior people. And of course, the world's moved on since they were that age. So I, I do a lot of mentoring still. Um, in terms of organisational work, uh, one of my uh, board roles is with Kingston University. And they're a very interesting university. They've had some difficult times in recent years but a a rebuilding and I think going from strength to strength. And part of that has been the development of the inclusive curriculum. Um, Around 50% of Kingston students are non-white and uh, they typically, historically, as in many universities, have lower achievement rates. uh, And Kingston have done some great work to get uh, get those rates up. Um, and then finally, I'd mention also the work I do with the Premier League uh, in football, which is, uh, brings together my passion for diversity with one of my other passions as well, um, working with the clubs to achieve, help them achieve their equality standards. And that's been pretty illuminating, getting under the skin of a, a game that I love, but also looking at it not just from a sporting viewpoint, but also from you know, what needs to change around diversity. And of course, in all these different industries, you find different issues. And there's some really fascinating stuff there about um, clearly role models and, and what people see on, on, on the big screen while they're watching the football, thinking about sort of uh, organisational structures and reverse mentoring and, and, of course, feeding the pipeline right the way through to uh, sort of academic um, backgrounds, if you like. So the, plenty there we'll unpick for sure. James, let me turn to you. What, what are you focused on at the moment? Well, I mean, perhaps by, by way of background, it's, it's worth saying that, um, you know, the investment management business is a global business and it's a very highly competitive business and it's one that in which you need to succeed you need to have the best possible people you can 
And diversity is absolutely critical to getting the best people you possibly can. And something, therefore, we're, we're focused on. If we don't have the best people, we won't innovate well. We won't develop um, our business successfully. And, 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 and we won't achieve our objectives on, on, on a global basis. So against that background, it's very important. I think also it's important to remember that there are an awful lot of negative perceptions around about the role of the investment management and wealth management industries. And I think that's one of the things that we, 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 you know, we're, we're actively addressing is, is how can we do, do that better. We need to do something positive, and we have been doing something positive since 2010, uh, when our co-chief executive was one of the founders of Investment 2020. And Investment 2020 is, is aimed at, at uh, targeting young people to get into the business of investment management. Because there are lots of very strange perceptions about who should be in investment management and what sort of people are suitable for investment management. And I, I'd recommend anybody listening to this to, to have a look at YouTube. And if you look up investment management industry, be surprised by who works there. Uh, you'll see an extremely good little uh, little podcast of um, uh, uh, describing just how diverse some of the young people are that are now working in in the investment management industry. If we can extend the the, the number of, of of young people working in our in our business in a diverse way. As they move through the career, it will improve as you go up. And eventually, we will have a proper representation on, on, on board at board level. And we'll be sure to put that uh, YouTube clip on the, on the website and also tweet that out as well, yeah. which, which is great. And, and there's, again, there's a lot in there really about you know, the commercial imperative. I mean, this is, all, this is a great conversation to be having, but ultimately it's about performance, particularly the world of investment management. And then and, and attractiveness as an industry. Actually, for that young talent you were talking about, Paul, in, in universities and, you know, why would people want to work in the city if they don't feel that they have a, a place and a contribution to be made? And particularly when targeting young people. So I wonder whether starting with young people is, is the most natural place to begin. And I, I'm always cautious before I talk about, uh, you know, talent in a young sense, because there are a lot of amazing retraining initiatives, particularly around digital skills. We've had some of the guests on podcasts before. But, but let's go back to um, university and first entrance, let's call it, into the industry. I mean, Paul, you talk about your work at Kingston University. It's particularly, we're sitting here at diversity podcast, thinking about financial services. Do you think there's a huge void between the talent coming through and wanting to come into the city, does that feel like a, a, a void that is easily breached, or do you think the industry has a long way to go? Oh, I think it has a long way to go. I think it's you know it's quite a chasm uh, for a lot of people. The perceptions, I and mean, as James was just mentioning, I think there are some very particular perceptions about what the city requires and who's likely to be successful. So, so yes, it is a it is a big um, a big jump for a lot of people to make. Uh, and I think role models are an important point. Uh, and part of that, because if people look at the senior people in organisations and don't see people like themselves, then they kind of automatically imagine that they're, perhaps they're not not welcome or it's not not suited to them. I mean, I'm one of probably a handful, maybe less than ten partners that my firm had, has had in total over the years, of which there's probably two thousand in total. So, I mean, really, a lot of people have said to me, a lot of young people in in the firm, a lot of graduate joiners have said to me, you know, how did you get here and why are you the only one and uh, and of course, a lot of the time um, that then leads to mentoring relationships and, and perhaps helps them to stay a bit longer. But I think one of the problems that many firms find is that their graduate intakes can be very, very diverse. Um, but uh, unfortunately, over time, a lot of those people move on and the flowing up through the grades to the senior positions doesn't always happen. And that's true of various different uh, minorities. 
And what can close that, close that gap? Would it be more corporates reaching out and inviting students into their organisations? Are there some very practical things that you think the city can do to open its doors to, to, to demonstrate? Because there is actually, uh, uh, there's a lot we hear about on the podcast about uh, new, uh, new role models coming through. I think firms have to be very clear about where their particular challenges are. It's quite hard to generalise around the whole industry and in fact of course financial services is a whole range of industries not just one really so whether you're in banking insurance asset management professional services it's all all different and i think individual firms and we we did this at, at pwc many years ago had to have to look at you know where they're doing well and where they aren't and we thought we were doing well because we were for example in the case of ethnic minorities recruiting something like 35 36 percent of our graduate intake and that was more than the national average so we thought, oh, that's great. We haven't got a recruitment problem. Then we found out that the um, application rate was 50%. So we were actually not doing as well as we thought we were relative to those who were actually applying. So getting people to apply wasn't the issue. Um, but advancement in the firm is another matter entirely. Mm-hmm. Now, in different corners of the industry, it might be that attraction is an issue. For others, it's retention. For others, it's promotion. So I think people have got to be very careful about understanding, look at the data and work out where their own issues are and then see where they can do things differently. And is there anything in what, what Paul's saying, James, in, in sort of the work you're thinking about both within your firm, but also as part of the Investment 2020 that you, you could respond to? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things to remember, of course, is that uh, working in the city is not about finance. There are an awful lot of jobs in the city that have got nothing to do with finance, but actually are very, very important, whether that's uh, marketing, human resources, compliance, risk. I mean, there's some some very different things. And I think people have a sort of fixed in their mind that that sometimes that, you know, in order to, to come into the city, you know, you've got to be doing economics or you've got to be got to be a graduate. I mean, within Investment 2020, I mean, 48 percent of the people who've been placed in jobs within the city are not graduates. So, you know, the, the city isn't just a graduate place to work. You know, we welcome people who are, who are straightforward school leavers. And, and has that changed over the years? So do, do, you, do you have the, any, any sort of baseline figures to, to compare I, with? I don't have a baseline. I don't have a baseline figure um, to do. But I think that that's the important thing is it's, it's for everyone. We need to get that message out and, and take away that stereotype. Um, you know, 38% of the, of the people who've been placed are, um, are female. Forty-one uh, percent are from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic groups. So you know we're getting this 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 sort of sort of mixture. Eighty-eight um, percent of the trainees we've placed come from state schools. There is this stereotype that city people have to come from public schools. They don't. I, I went to a state school. Um, so you know that I think is all all very very important. And the success of it, I think, comes in the fact that seventy-four percent of the trainees who went to work in the 30 different asset management businesses that are part of Investment 2020, um, 74% of them stayed in permanent roles. So, you know, they're getting in there, they're trying it out, they're succeeding. And I think I think that's very important. But what we've got to be to make this work is welcoming. And, and that's very, very important because when people are bringing people into their businesses, when you're recruiting people, you tend to look for people that you think will fit into your team. And that actually is the wrong mindset. And one of the things we do at Janice Anderson is try to, 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 to educate our, our managers who are recruiting people to think outside that, not think who's comfortable, who, who, who's got the skills, who can really add value. And, and there's, um, there's always a very interesting sort of dynamic to that, which is, and I have actually personally quite a lot of empathy for it, which is it's very easy to talk about the middle management layer who, again, will naturally sort of resort to type. And I'm thinking sort of when I when I frame this out in two ways. One of them is about the organisational fit. 
And how, therefore, do you get organisations to fit its future talent and its talent to be welcomed into an organisation? But then also the other thing is uh, changing the mindsets of people who have been hired in a particular way, are, uh, are sets targets in a particular way, remunerated in a particular way, and therefore it takes some courage to think about that. And, and, and so I kind of open the question to you both, really, and maybe perhaps Paul will start with you about the question about organisational fit and, and how, how do you see that changing or do you have any ideas about how to, uh, to help that dynamic shift? I think most organisations have a, an aspiration to uh, be more inclusive, to, to welcome in a wider variety of people, change some of those perceptions that, that James was referring to. Um, I think the issue is often one of incentives. Um, I mean, I know from my long experience as a partner in a professional services firm that you're under an awful lot of pressure day to day. You, know, you have to deliver the financial results. And if you're auditing one of the largest banks in the country or you've got a complex corporate finance assignment like some of the ones I used to do in infrastructure, then you want a team that's going to deliver for you because you haven't got, you know, you don't want to take a risk in many cases. And that can lead to a certain type of behaviour in terms of who you select and some what would appear to be safe choices. Now, of course, you never know what would have happened if you chose someone else, but the tendency to choose someone similar, I think often comes back to the pressures that people are under on a day-to-day basis. And you've got to kind of relieve some of those pressures if you expect things to change. You can't just expect people to be more pro-diversity and include a wider variety of people if you're not going to also take some of that pressure away. And, and what will release that kind of pressure valve, if you like? Is it is it about saying to people, it will give you a quarter's grace? Or is it, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, what are some of the things that will drive that change? I think... Um, People have got to be. We we often talk to uh, you know, in the firm about a balanced scorecard in terms of how we were evaluating people, and yeah, you know, part of that scorecard was based on how much money you brought in. Part of it was how well you did your job in relation to the people in the team. Part of that was um, just being a good sort of corporate citizen. But at the end of the day, if people get the feeling that it's the financial side of things that's really going to be ninety odd percent of the way in which they're evaluated, then that's when. The, the choices that people make get skewed. So I think you've got to be very clear, send very clear signals about what sort of behaviours you want, you know, the how you do things rather than just the what you do um, as a leader in a business to try and change the way in which people behave and bring awareness to people as well because it's not always obvious to them when they're busy and stressed and making these day-to-day choices that that's what they're doing. But there are certain behaviours that lead to better chances for some than others that you know, a good leader can, can call out and make people aware of. And, and James, in your world of thinking about, you know, very, I mean, driven by very explicit performance that is literally measured kind of month by month, day by day, month by month, uh, quarter by quarter. Uh, and again, coming back to this question about the middle management layer and, and how do you encourage people to 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 engage with talent that isn't exactly like them? Uh, anything you're particularly focused on? Well, I think one of the one of the things that's desperately important is that um, is that sort of white, if you like, um, uh, uh, boys particularly, but some girls as well, are very much better at selling themselves than people from ethnic minority backgrounds who are much quieter, much shyer, slightly more reticent. And so one of the things that is very important when you're interviewing somebody is to actually dig deep. Don't just see what's what's on the face, but dig deep and ask a lot of questions. I think the other thing that's very incumbent and and really benefits the business and certainly benefited my business, certainly benefited my team, is flexibility about how you manage them and making it clear to them that you are a flexible uh, employer. So giving them time if they've got families. I mean, you know, I've got some fantastic um, um, 
married men and women, both of whom have got, uh, all of whom have got children, who have demands around the fact they got children. And, you know, I'm quite happy for them to manage their time. If they get their job done, if they need to nip off, they need to do things, they can. And that way you get a lot of, of, of loyalty, you get some high quality work. But also it's down to simple things like, um, you know, with some very good people from, um, uh, from Muslim backgrounds, for example, who like to pray in the afternoons. Well, fine. Let them go and pray. Provide them with a space. You know, if you if you're flexible and you say, look, we're welcoming. We're very happy. You 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 whatever you're comfortable with, then you'll get the best out of them. And that that's about giving people an environment within which to bring their authentic selves to work. And and that is multi layered. And it's interesting your point about you know when you go into interviews because uh, you know often the still pools. Not not the brash people who come into an interview go, yeah, I'm the great person of the job. But it's actually the people. You know, still pools often run deep. And it's about kind of getting down into into that, and 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 actually a lot of uh, that talent is is um, I mean it's not a topic for today's podcast specifically, but are very much driven by spirituality and faith and uh, those value systems, which again need to be given environments within which to th- exist and thrive. Absolutely, and 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 what happens is you get these people into your teams, and then they start looking at things in a different way, giving different insights different thoughts. And then suddenly the people that you've had that have always been there suddenly think, oh, this is interesting. This is clever. I've not thought of it that way. And then the collaboration becomes much, much more effective. And it's successful collaboration that drives successful innovation, that drives a successful business. And that's why it's so valuable to be doing this. And, and arguably, I mean, again, this comes back to, you know, commercial imperative and also competitive advantage, actually, and success. Is, you know, is, is there an untapped competitive advantage in tapping into... Uh, these pools of talent, um, particularly the BAME community pool. I mean, are you? I, mean, I, I hear a lot of people do talk about this and just go, you know, it's right under our noses and we're not tapping into. But are there some inherent behaviours and characteristics? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think, yeah, fundamentally, um, I mean, I agree entirely with what you know James said about diversity and, and the way he described very well what happens in those interactions in teams where you get different people with different views because they do think, oh, I hadn't thought about that before and, and start to think differently and build on each other and you do get a better outcome. I mean, I think one of the interesting points is, I mean, James, you made the point about, you know, white males being better at self-promotion. I, I would say white males are better at self-promotion to white males. Because you know, a lot of women aren't very impressed with uh, obvious white male self-promotion. A lot of people from other cultures aren't very impressed with white male uh, self-promotion either. And it's a, that, that in itself is a generalisation. But nevertheless, I think what a lot of um, white males can do very well is demonstrate the sorts of traits that we've seen as leadership traits for a long time. And um, the fact that there's another way of doing it isn't necessarily always appreciated. And one of the points, Julia, I think about authenticity is that sometimes people feel, some women feel, they have to be like a man in order to be perceived as likely to succeed. And a lot of people from ethnic minorities who have different cultural approaches feel they have to be louder. I mean, it always amuses me when um, the way white British people react to white Americans, always think they're way too loud and everything. They say, yeah, well, that's kind of the way that a lot of the rest of the world looks at British people. Um, so, you know, all these things are relative and there are different ways of doing it. And, and we have a particular cultural um, set of norms and appreciations here in, in the UK that we think are good. You know, there's a certain amount that's loud enough, but not too loud, you know, um, and we like a little bit of reserve. And it's different at certain places. And sometimes outsiders have to learn that and adapt. 
but equally they need to be able to bring their own authentic self and you know get you as a team to a better result. And I think that's a perfect moment to take a break there and turn to Cynthia and Robert for some research to support today's discussion. A recent study carried out by Investment 2020 shows that there are still stereotypical perceptions about working in the city. A survey of 1,500 people aged 16 to 24 in the UK showed that almost three quarters of young people still believe that a university degree is essential to being able to work in financial services. 46% of those surveyed said they wouldn't consider a career in financial services with only 16% finding the sector appealing at all. These statistics show that the industry still has work to do if it is to attract the best and brightest young talent. BAME employees aged 18 to 34 were more likely to agree that everyone has the opportunity to achieve their potential at work, no matter their identity or background, compared to those aged over 45. All BAME employees, regardless of ethnicity, were significantly more likely than white British employees to say that seeing other people like them who have progressed in the organisation would help boost their careers. Employees from Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi and mixed-race backgrounds were more likely than white British employees to say that having a mentor would help kick-start their career. Although the research covered a number of different sectors, it provides financial services firms with ideas for how they can better support the career progression of BAME employees. Thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on the website www.diversitypodcast.com. And don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S, diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at diversitypod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. We'd love a rating. It all helps to promote the show. So in this discussion, we've been thinking about... Um, obviously the accessibility and the connection between uh, talent and organisations. And I think one of the most fascinating dynamics at play at the moment is how so many jobs didn't exist five years ago. When you think about the impact of technology and also digital skills and cyber, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I could go on for a while, which almost turns organisations on their head because, you know, senior managers used to know everything and young talent used to know nothing. But of course now senior managers are looking at young talent going, "I, I really need you. I'm coming back to this this point we were making earlier about how do you get the, those two worlds to connect better, and um, how do how do you James how do you open up that pool of talent to make it available for the organisation as a whole? Well, one of the ways in which Investment Twenty Twenty makes uh, makes these middle managers more comfortable about employing these sorts of people is by taking the trainees that are placed through Investment Twenty Twenty out of their headcount so that they're employed centrally within the organisation and then placed for a year into the different businesses. And I think what's really interesting about that is that, that a lot of the teams have got lots of work on, there's lots of things going on, they need extra help, they need that, so they, they want to have the trainee, they get the trainee in, and when they get them, they realise how good they are. 74% of the people Investment 2020 have placed ended up in a permanent role within the firm in which they were a trainee. And I think that's that's very significant. And I think having had one trainee from, 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 from a diverse background that's done a really good job for them changes the mindset of the middle manager almost straight away. 
And I think the more we do of this, and any, any business outside of the investment management industry should think about giving this a try. Having trainees centrally funded that then, then uh, their managers can, can have in their teams for a period and realise just how good they can be. And there's always that interesting discussion about how you need talent to drive performance. And this, this really is about, you know, again, I'm going to keep coming back to this point because uh, that is ultimately what will drive change is commercial performance as well. Um, Paul, how do, you, how do you look at the world? As you're an outsider looking in and watching all these dynamics at play, what are your thoughts around performance? Well, as far as diversity and inclusion goes, that's the whole point for me. Um, I said to someone the other day who was saying, oh, I get told by my boss that I propose all these diversity initiatives. And he said, well, if we do all that, we'll end up going bust. And I, I, I looked at them and said, well, you know, I've been working in diversity for probably about 15 years, uh, not as a day job all the time, but you know, as part of my job. And I've never recommended that the organisation do anything that isn't consistent with better performance. Now, sometimes, I think, as James has just said, you need to find a way, like, for example, centrally funding some new trainees, of getting people to, to try before they buy, as it were, you know, to try and de-risk it for them. Because a lot of this is about risk and fear. But, of course, we can't just assume that today's performance is the best that could be achieved. It's what we've got, but it may not be the best we, ha- we, could, we could achieve. So maybe if we try some different people, we'll, we'll do better. But getting people beyond that, um, that risk aversion... Uh, and giving them the tools to um, take some risks is often what this is about. Yeah, there are lots of inhibiting forces in organisations that stop people taking risks. And sometimes different people are perceived as a risk when they're not really, they just look different. And, and of course, is it fair to say that will change over time? I think one of the things I loved about your story, James, was that, you know, try once and guess what, you know, you'll learn through the process and, and, and open up your mind. And, and I'm, I'm actually sort of quite hopeful, actually, in, in the context of this conversation to think that over time that that will change. Um, any final comments from, from the two of you? I would sort of counsel caution. I'm an optimist, but I would counsel caution that things will just change over time gradually. I mean, they will to some degree as demographics change, but... I think we've been at this for a long time now and I think the speed of change in organisations isn't as great as I think a lot of us would have hoped. So um, just because you're getting people in at the bottom doesn't mean they'll flourish and it's often what's going on within an organisation that's the hardest to understand. It's cultural, you know, it's it's not written on the walls but people know what's going on and um, we have to work at that very, very, very hard consistently to try and make sure that we do genuinely develop inclusive leaders who can get uh, all sorts of people you know, up the firms and into senior positions. And what do you think will be the accelerating factors to drive that change faster? I think it's a, it's a mindset, really. Uh, I think people have to see the limitations of the way in which um, firms have been run in the past and be open to, to change. And, and I think leadership at the, the top level of firms across any industry is critical in that because it's those people who will... Um, give other people the courage to take those risks. I mean, I'd absolutely agree with what you say, and I think the you know the, the the real issue here is making sure that these these people from diverse backgrounds who are coming in at the bottom then flourish through the business uh, going forward. Um, I'm optimistic that will happen. I'm, I'm certainly optimistic because um, the senior management at Jonas Henderson, for one, is absolutely committed to it. But why are they committed to it? They're committed to it because it'll make the business better. And that, I think, is the, is the key thing. And also, I think young people themselves are much less touched by these stereotypes 
than, than the older people are. And these older people are going to retire. So I think things will change, but we can't be complacent about it. We've got to keep keep pushing the agenda, keep talking about it and pointing to, to where within the business success has come because we've had this diverse uh, employee workforce. It's been a wonderful conversation. We could talk for quite a long time. I just want to take the moment to thank you both for coming along, Paul and James. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roy Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. 